quick question what is the one thing uber amazon netflix and twitter have in common if your first thought is they're all apps on my phone you're actually very close to clinching the fundamentals of this new platformized world that we all live and work in today and that's what our podcast is all about Hi and welcome to Platform Predicament Making Sense of a Datafied Future of Work This podcast is brought to you by IT for Change and supported by Friedrich Ebert Stiftung This series explores the very bold and very quick changes taking place in the labor economy today driven by rapid digitalization and platformization of the workplace Join us as platform workers trade unionists labor economists and platform founders help us make sense of this new digital economy. In this first episode, as is fitting, we begin our journey to understand platformization and its implications by exploring how it all began. What the advent of technology has meant for the labor market, how the emergence of platform-based work has been an important implication of it, and why it's gained such traction. None of these companies are making any profits as of now. Many of them are in losses. But there's a belief that one day one of them is going to be a survivor. So, well, let's invest. So, you know, that's what the notion has been and that's how this entire platform economy has been running. That was the voice of Uma Rani, a senior economist at the research department of the International Labor Office, better known as the ILO. She has been researching and writing extensively on platformization of work. Here she was talking about the recent trends among what we now come to understand as platform companies. So, what are platforms? Simply, platforms orchestrate the production and exchange of products and services by optimizing relationships among a network of actors: consumers, advertisers, service providers, producers, suppliers, and even objects. the largest businesses of the world today are set up on the platform model it is often said that the modern day capitalist does not own the means of production but the means of connection and that's exactly what a platform company does in many ways it creates foundational technology which further creates a scalable network of producers and consumers uh data and its smart usage forming a large part of this leading to infinite potential for growth technically speaking so it's worth noting then that since 2010 there has been a five fold rise globally in the number of such digital labor platforms they're either facilitating online work or directly engaging workers to provide services the global south by the way has a large part of this share all of this led us to the question what is the history of platform work and how did it even begin we spoke to uma some more about this I think this is a very interesting question and I think this needs to be also contextualized in a historical perspective I would say. So you know, we need to understand that with the bust of the IT dot com boom, uh I think turn of the last century around 2000s, you know, there has been a sort of a vacuum that has been created within the IT sector as to you know what needs to be done and what is where could you actually progress or take technology to in a way 
And added to that was the global economic crisis of 2008. So, you know, there was all of this venture capital funds that are available and you don't know what to do about it. And at the same time, you find that there are new innovations that are happening in digital technology. Because if you start looking at when digital labor platforms actually started, some of the earliest ones, whether it is the e-lance in the freelance era or much more importantly, there, are two, there were two platforms actually in the innovation space or what is also called uh, as competitive programming platforms like Innocentive and Topcoder. Actually, they got started in 99, 2000s. And the idea behind that, those platforms have been, how can we try to get, uh, you know, specialized, uh, uh, you know, computer programmers or data scientists or data analysts to actually look at some of the issues as the pace at which the technology is changing and the demands for services that were changing were at a rapid pace. So, you know, if you were employing a worker, a software engineer or a software developer in the firm, you know, the kind of knowledge they had uh, would quickly outpace with new innovations that were coming and the software developer had to actually gain the skills to be able to actually meet the demands. Would it be a correct understanding then that the crowdwork-based platforms may have emerged before the location-based work came or have they both had their own trajectories and I think uh, based on the work that I have done for the ILO report that got published last year, I think what I see very clearly is the freelance and innovation platforms coming up late 1990s already. And then you do see the Microtask platform, which is the Amazon Mechanical Turk that comes up. And that's around 2004. And then as a result of it, you know, you have a number of other Microtask platforms like Clickworker, Crowdflower, others coming into the fore. And taxi platforms have come much later. I think it's uh, in the late, uh, I think after 2006-07, that you see one-by-one platforms coming up and then immediately you see that there is a potential for these platforms to exist and survive. Okay, so wait a minute. What's gig work then? And how is it different from platform work, if at all? And should we care? An easy way to understand this is that while gig work refers to the nature of work itself, that is assignment-based, short-term, no regular wage, some flexibility sometimes, etc. Platform work makes a reference to how this work is done. That is the technological innovation part, which enables in some cases or smoothens in some cases the interaction between workers and other stakeholders like we discussed. In an ideal world, platform-based work can also be secure, regularized and formal, so to speak. There are such platforms, by the way, being set up in different parts of the world, which we will also get to in later episodes. But coming back, With this context laid out, the next big question is, what does platformization mean for the employment question? The narratives are varied depending on whom we listen to, and then there are numbers. On the one hand, it is claimed that India is experiencing a seismic shift in its work culture today. Young people don't want to be stuck in jobs where they have to work long hours for minimal pay. 
and therefore we're all finding sustainable employment opportunities in this country's rapidly growing platform based gig economy and some of the more aspirational ones are becoming micro entrepreneurs however numbers also tell us a different truth that of an acute lack of jobs of jobless growth and such conditions are usually ripe for precarious work to thrive an important part of understanding the advent and growth of this platformized labor market is also that one truth does not hold true everywhere countries in south asia and in the global south have had a history as well as a thriving present of an informal economy and therefore while the innovation of the platform is new the format of gig work is not on the other hand in the global north the phenomenon of gig based work itself is relatively in its early stages paritosh nath assistant professor at apu that is the azim premji university who specifically looks at questions of industrial relations and the modern urban labor markets helped us break this down if you have an economy where jobs are not being created whatever jobs are there are or the majority of jobs are which are there are of a very poor quality that when a new platform or a new medium comes in there will be takers for it right it is not because of the flexibility accorded it is not because of the notion that i am my own boss which is driving people to join uh, this segment it is simply because people want work right and uh, if work is available they will do it i think what we need to do as researchers or people who are interested uh, especially coming in from the global south is to differentiate between what was the sort of stated or written imagination of what gig work was all about in the early literature that was coming in uh, particularly from the global north right and what we have witnessed on the ground say in countries such as india right because the objective or the understanding which was sort of put out there was of a form of employment right which was more flexible one would not need to conform to a standard working 8 hours um, length of a day uh, there was more flexibility accorded to the types of work that people could have been engaged in right and there was a celebration of this notion there was a celebration of the fact that an individual could work in activity a for 2 hours in a day take a break work in activity b and there there was um, a suggestion that this would further help a person develop their skill set and would lead to better incomes would lead to a better sort of quality of life and that's basically what are uh, is the etymological sort of roots of this gig work performing gigs at different places right which seems to or provides a sense that the ownership of one's labor power and the ownership of decision making lies in the hands of a worker right now this is i i'm not an expert on how it actually pans out in the global north so this is not something that i would go into but in terms of the global south right can we apply these this sort of an understanding to an economy which is very different in terms of how it operates from the global north to begin with right most people in this country would be willing to offer anything to get a regular 8 hour working day if it was possible for them right so that, that that's not what is the attraction around here 
Paratosh's point about regional context making a huge difference to how the gigging platform economy functions is crucial when we go about looking at law and regulation for this sector and also when we look at the future of this kind of work in different parts of the world. Basudev Barman, Network Coordinator for Ride-Hailing Apps Workers' Unions at the International Transport Federation, also highlighted the reasons for the influx of new workers into this platform-based gig work and what's causing it. Yeah, so initially when the, uh, Ola and Uber started their business in 2010 and Uber subsequently in 2013, it was observed that uh, people shifted from traditional jobs and uh, other opportunities in these kind of workspaces because they were paying much better compared to any other companies at that point of the time. But as gradually the market stabilized for them, uh, for Ola and Uber, and they uh, started uh, owning the monopoly over like ride sharing and um, and other services that they were providing, their rates started to the their commission rates started to go up because of which the dri- drivers found it much more harder to like. Um, obtain a sustainable kind of a living out of these kind of jobs. At this point of the time, people are, it, it's more of a, like a, how should I say, a status quo has been reached in some sense or the other. People are not joining these jobs out of like uh, opportunities being available or um, or better pay or better pay structure or uh, earnings coming out of it, but more more in the lines that there are no more jobs left in India and these are one of the most uh, easily accessible opportunities for them. So uh, you will find people who have lost, uh, who had lost job during the pandemic and the lockdown have started like driving for Ola and Uber while few of them have also started full-time food delivery services for uh, Swiggy, Zomato, Dunzo and other services. Basudev, would there also be some regional nuance among these national trends which would explain how these influx and outflux trends work in the various regions? So we have to understand this also that every uh, I mean, gig and platform work in different cities of India uh, creates the push and total factor in a different kind of a way. So why the workers are actually joining Ola and Uber driving in, India, uh, in Delhi while uh, uh, there are mar- much more delivery and rapido drivers in Hyderabad and Bangalore are dis- totally different reasons that is happening over there. So in most of the cases you will see it's it's not only driven by socio-economic reasons but also cultural and also in terms of like um, how expenses are expensive the city itself is. So in cities like uh, Delhi, Mumbai, you'll find migrant workers coming from different cities to join Ola and Uber driving for uh, for maybe for fleet businesses or for leased cars or something on those lines. But in cities like Hyderabad and Bangalore where uh, it's much more uh, younger population, the students are over there, uh, you would find much more uh, people working over there as part-time food delivery workers or rapido uh, uh, drivers who are, who are like uh, providing like cheap transportation over there. We also spoke to Spandan Pratyush, who is a freelance software engineer and also a coordinator at the All India Gig Workers Union. He echoed similar sentiments about this type of work being the only option 
quote unquote for many in fact he had some interesting perspective to add about freelancers who weren't exactly at a complete loss of jobs and this emergence of this platform based economy is not as organic as it may seem i can start uh, answering this question from a personal experience which i have had and that was with urban company it was uh, formerly known as urban clap so i think in 2017 or 2018 so that time gig economy was still being introduced and a lot of uh, propaganda articles were written uh, by people involved uh, in in propagating this free market economy and this new form of work in the era of digitalization I, that time since i work as a software engineer so i actually interviewed with urban clap and they had sent me a lot of propaganda articles uh, to show why this urban clap or which is now become urban company is a good model for future work and uh, that was in general the mood which was being set the narrative which was being set online that this is a very good form of work where everyone can benefit and uh, it was shown in a way that uh, i specifically remember uh, this data which was provided that uh, the beauticians or the saloon owners were making like uh, 12000 a month uh, right now so while getting on urban company they would be able to make 70000 or 80000 a month so when that kind of uh, dreams were shown to people a lot of uh, people even from the middle classes a lot of people who had college degrees uh, were attracted to this form of work also the jobs were constantly shrinking with the digitalization which was going on a lot of traditional forms of work were getting disrupted at that time and this new form of work was coming on where you are not exactly uh, you do not exactly have that employer employee relationship but you are considered a partner and this idea was sold on a large scale so what happened then to this dream of an improved income and the elevated status of partner now if we are seeing uh, what has changed now like with all the rate cuts so for example if urban company people were saying that 70 80 000 is what the saloon owners are making uh, are going to make so right now they recently when there was a strike by urban company beauticians so they themselves released the data that still the top beauticians are making 36 000 per month obviously they did not release the mean or median data but right. still they were saying uh, so if we just see the uh, variation then from showing an uh, showing a dream of making 70000 a month it has already come down to top people making 36000 a month and uh, with this cut and the uh, right now the level of unemployment which we have in this country a lot of people do not have any other option but to take up this work for example in swiggy when a lot of people were protesting against the cut rates uh, the reduced rates uh, we had in, we had met a new guy who had joined swiggy who had just uh, come to that meeting just to see what was going on he was not okay. exactly facing those problems when we asked him uh, about uh, his experience he said uh, that he is coming from dunzo where he was making even lesser money so for him swiggy is still a race so mm. it's like when you've created this network where everyone is competing on how less they are paying then and uh, apart from this you have this huge unemployment which we have because of this uh, because of a lot of digitization and privatization in the economy a lot of older forms of work have become 
redundant and all the public sector uh, public sector work is being mostly privatized either very directly or indirectly via contract contractual work and all such consultations which are being brought in as we continue to understand the impact of platformization on employment the technology question remains crucial the paranoia about robots taking over the world is not new so are machines really going to replace us at the workplace here's some food for thought robot density per worker in 2018 was the highest in germany korea and singapore yet in all of these countries the employment rate remains high at the very least it tells us that there is as always no universal truth and context matters recently the 2019 world bank report on changing nature of work also took on this issue and talked about three things worth noting first that it's easier to assess how technology shapes the demand for various types of skills rather than it is to estimate its direct effect on job losses second that this impact of tech on jobs is not always in a linear direction quoting an instance in chile where in fact abstract work was taken up by machines which led to more workers getting involved in the manual so called routinized tasks thirdly that technology is changing the geography of jobs with production value chains becoming more and more global enabled with more and more efficient tech the emergence of platforms in countries such as india and bangladesh is leading to creation of a skilled workforce they are ready to work for clients anywhere in the world and are the clients choice of ours so how does this influx of more and more workers into the platform economy reconcile with this machine run imagination of the labor markets of the future uma vezen i want to just say that when we do talk about ai and this whole notion that exists that you know ai is taking over a lot of jobs yes there is a development of ai in certain areas but there is less development of ai in certain other areas and i think platforms also help in a lot of this machine learning of ai over a period of time i think that's something that we need to keep in mind now coming to the lower end tasks that you're talking about you know there's this whole notion that some of the secretarial tasks are automated so you know you have a virtual assistant today who can actually um uh fix an appointment between you and me without a human intervention and you think wow what a tool it is and let me actually subscribe to it and utilize it but what we do not know is that the natural language processing tool of the ai is not really developed well developed so you know you have as a result you have a lot of humans actually intervening and working with the ai so it might be look like some of these jobs are no longer available in some of the countries in the global north or developed countries or english speaking countries but much of these jobs then are done by platform workers or you know business process outsourcing companies in the global south and there are there are very clear hubs that are emerging for these kinds of tasks so what is happening again is in the name of ai certain jobs are replaced or there is you know a complete uh, reclassification of the tasks that a worker does 
While the jobs per se don't go away, they are in the process of getting automated, but they are then sent to other parts of the world where very highly qualified and highly educated workers actually end up doing those tasks because of lack of uh, labor market opportunities or employment opportunities within the labor market. So I wouldn't say as of now that it's like, you know, automation is coming in, replacing jobs, no. Okay. It's a little confusing, right? All of our understanding about where the labor market is is headed and work itself is headed being challenged by these experts. Maybe going back a bit in history will help. Now, I have said it in different places. It's there in the report and elsewhere is also the fact that, you know, all of this work existed in the traditional labor market, as you said. You know, a beauty worker existed, a domestic worker existed, a taxi driver existed. Similarly, a computer programmer or a software developer or a data analyst or somebody who's doing a design, they all existed in the traditional labor market, right? So what is technology doing? It's improving efficiency because it's mediating workers with the clients or the customers. And then on online labor platforms, what you see is that the work can be outsourced to a global pool of workers instead of the earlier mechanism that would take place, either where you hire workers internally within the firm and get it done, or if you do not have that specialization, you would outsource to another small firm, right? So you have a kind of a supply chain in services that is happening, and this is very well known um, Within the IT sector services and also manufacturing, increasingly you find that. So, you know, the mode in which it is operating, how technology is utilized, that's what is bringing about a change. But it brings about a big change. And I think this is something that we have to uh, keep in mind. The work remains the same, but what is happening is this further precaritization of work uh, through this technology-mediated force. Uh, unfortunately, people do not link the two. For me, it is the two are the same side of the coin. I think the difference is one was in the manufacturing sector and you see the same thing in the service sector today. And I think we need to link this debate much more strongly than it is done. Saloni Hiryadur, Senior Coordinator at Seva Cooperative Federation, also emphasize these similarities and interactions. So the way I have come to see it is that the gig economy is a manifestation of the informal economy in many ways. Uh, gig workers currently are working without a fixed employer as platforms do not consider themselves employers. Uh, and uh, therefore, they also lack work and income security and social security. Now, this is the very definition of informality. So with all this talk about how this is old wine in a new bottle in some sense, why is it still important to pay attention to platform-based work as a new phenomenon? What makes it unique? What are the unifying elements across sectors? And what makes us want to talk about this over a series of podcast episodes? Saloni put forth a pertinent point about the significance of platforms, especially important from the perspective of women's participation in the workforce. 
So um, traditionally and even now, uh, women struggle to identify themselves as workers, right? If you go to a woman uh, and you ask her, what do you do? What is your work? She will usually say, I don't do anything. I just, you know, work in the house. I do the housework. Uh, to enable women to identify themselves as workers uh, and to recognize that unpaid care work is still work is a struggle even now. And this is also linked to the state not identifying or valuing care work. So this is one part of the response. Now, when there is a platform, a digital platform that is mediating your work, as opposed to, say, a woman working um, isolated in a household as a domestic worker, which is the traditional way that a domestic worker would work, there is an added uh, element of identity as a quote-unquote productive worker attached to this. It's not, you know, working in someone's house or working in your house. You wear a uniform. You have tools usually. Uh, you Money comes into your bank account directly. Uh, you are also an importantly mobile, more mobile than you would have been. Um, so just to say that there are aspects of this platform economy that contribute to women seeing themselves as workers, uh, identifying as uh, productive, uh, and in the way they engage with not just the labor market, but also with uh, their communities and their uh, cities. On the other hand, what makes platform the platform economy distinct is that uh, it has in a way um, formalized worker isolation um, which makes it of course harder for any unions to or any cooperatives to you know reach these workers and to organize them uh, this is an additional sort of hurdle that the union movement that the labor movement in general has to overcome um, and what it has done also, the platform economy, is that it has changed the way the market also is working, is engaging with these informal workers, right? Um, this could be good, it could be bad. You know, it has pushed up uh, wage rates in some cases. Uh, we see research telling us that. But it has also um, created for more vulnerabilities of workers in, the, in what I already mentioned in terms of social protection and uh, recognition of an employer. Uma also weighed in on why platforms are unique. Uh, yes, there are a couple of points that I'd really like to bring about here about the unifying element. Like, yes, they're either location-based or they're online-based. But I think the unifying element is much more in the way the business model operates itself. So... One of the things that they do is they classify workers as self-employed or independent contractors, which is problematic, especially when you see that, you know, you have algorithmic management practices in place, which monitor and monitor workers in real time. And when you start looking at it, you think that this is very similar to what you see in the traditional sector. So why are they being actually classified as self-employed. The second important thing I would say is that the revenue strategy of these platforms is quite interesting. So normally workers would never pay any kind of uh, fees or money to get any kind of jobs. But all these models, all these models, probably Microtask is one of them where you don't see, but there are certain models even there where you see where workers have to pay a part of their earnings as commission fees to the platform, which is again very specific to this model. And not only that, on freelance platforms, you know, you see uh, that's one step further. 
you see that workers pay different types of fees to be able to get their bids or to be able to come up on the top of the list to actually go about getting work. The third thing that I see is the algorithmic management practices. I think that exists across all the models in different forms. And I think that's something very important for us to keep in mind. And the final thing that I would say is that what platforms have done is they have become very agile. They have become very asset-like themselves and they have transferred and shifted the entire responsibility of, you know, both the capital cost as well as the operating cost onto the workers. And I think that's a fundamental shift that is also happening. And these are the commonalities that you very clearly see, irrespective of whether you are talking about cloud work platforms or location-based platforms that you see. With that, we come to the end of episode one of our podcast, The Platform Predicament, Making Sense of a Datafied Future of Work. This podcast is brought to you by IT for Change and supported by Friedrich Ebert Stifting. A big thank you to all the experts who helped us get started on this journey. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Stay with us as we continue to learn more about what this platform economy means for managerial relationships, data and tech regulation, workers' rights movements, and the platform structure itself. This and more in the upcoming episodes.